Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Mark Pratt, CEO, founder of Project Partners, a projects program and change expert. Mark, I attribute you to teaching me the very best of what it takes to deliver major change. And you are one of two major projects mentoring figures in my career. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. Trip down memory lane. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Alistair. It's uh, great to be here and thanks for that very kind introduction. Well, I want to get into that at some point in the conversation because I genuinely mean that. I worked with you on a major, major change program that we'll get into, and that's what's created the benchmark for what it takes to deliver major change in a very structured, very well-managed way, and and you don't always see it all the time. So I always remember that, and, and probably to the annoyance of people I work with sometimes because you, you can be a stickler. Um, I think that obviously as your experience um, uh, comes on through the years and you um, find yourself in different scenarios running huge programs with you know, multi-million pound budgets and you know, hundreds or, or thousands of people um, working on them um, to, to very small projects at startups where you know, you're working on a shoestring and, and, um, and a wing and a prayer Um you kind of um you kind of see it from all different angles and i suppose what i've learned over time is that um just enough governance and the appropriate level of governance and oversight of a project is what's needed so um and, and usually on a risk based approach i mean i very much believe that the the secret to quality project delivery is is risk management um, and that might sound simple and obvious, but I think too many people um, work on projects where they um, haven't taken the time to understand um, the risks, uh, correlate them to their their plan. And a plan is only ever a, a best guess of what might happen. Um, and then um, prioritize those risks. So really the day-to-day -day work of managing a project is to um, manage those prioritized risks so that you eventually um, end up at the outcome that you hoped at the beginning, um, if you've even written that down, which many people don't do. Um, and yeah, so going through that journey of, of managing your risk um, and, and getting a successful project outcome is uh, is all about just, just enough governance in my mind. And we're kind of jumping straight into it, but but let's keep the conversation going. Managing your risk is is very different to to just writing it down. Uh, but you actually taught me the correct way to write risks down. And you talk about, you know, there there is a risk that such and such will happen and the impact of this is. But you also were very, very clear that we had to make the risk understandable to our nana. And you were always very clear about that. But just writing it down in and of itself is not going to fix it. So then there's the day-to-day, -day, well, what do I actually do about this well-articulated risk that my nana can understand? Yeah, absolutely. So, what? Um, let's 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 start with a bit of a framework, and this may be helpful for uh, for people. So, when um, whenever you embark on on wanting to do a thing, a project, um, you know there there is always a form of a plan, however however loose, however well documented it may be. You know, a few bullet points on a piece of paper. It might be a 
very granular um, schedule of works or a, a Microsoft project plan or, or, a, or a document of that nature. Um, but there are a, a, along that along that journey, each each deliverable, each thing that you want to achieve to to achieve the overall outcome. Um, when you um, when you take the time to sit back and look at it, um, there are things that might stop you um, getting there. I always like to um, use very simple examples, which is why I refer to the nan analogy. Which I'm, I'm glad that stuck with you because I like to use those memory pegs um, to to kind of register with, with people that I work with and and that common language set. Um, it really kind of brings the project team um, along. So. Yeah, what well, the, the the project, the kind of example project I always used to use is, is building a house because most people can conceive that in their mind's eye if they hadn't even had had the experience of doing so. And so, you know, you you may um, you know be setting out on the journey of building a house, and you may um, you know the first stage of a house build may be the the drawings, and then the perhaps the foundations might be next, and then the the exterior, the roof the windows and the interior and the final fitments and so on people can imagine that project journey so to use that analogy is a useful is a useful thing and let's say we were at the you know the foundation stage of the, the project um and you know we need to have that in and the materials are coming and, and there might be a financial impact to us if we don't don't get the house house um started building um soon we might choose to um, I don't know, erect a canopy over the whole site to uh, so that the weather doesn't come in and we can we can keep the foundations going. And so so we're we're starting to think about what um what things might occur that might stop us putting those foundations in, what things might occur that might stop us putting the walls up. Um, and then we can we can think about what we might do to mitigate those risks. So do I want to spend the the money on the weather canopy that might cost me you know, £10,000 or whatever it might cost me, or am I happy to accept that by not spending that £10,000, I'm in I'm in the lap of the gods? And it's just critically analysing those major um, milestones along, um, along the project journey, thinking about what might go wrong and at least giving yourself the optionality to, to choose to mitigate them or not. Um, and part of, part of that is well articulating it so that everybody in the team can, can understand it and contribute. As if, as if your nan can understand it, as uh, as we said, um, and then part of that is um, is high quality and regular disciplined status reporting. So perhaps each week or each month, we sit down and we look at um, the risks that have been identified, and we see how people are getting along with with mitigating them and and what decisions we need to make, whether to accept them, whether to whether to mitigate them, whether to spend a little bit more money investigating them, whatever that might be. So. You know, you start with a plan and the best laid plans always veer off course. You know, it's it's just a best guess at the beginning. But the 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 trick to to staying on course and, and great communication throughout the project lifecycle is that high quality risk management in my in my mind. And typically, where do you see your average project manager trip themselves up with things like that? Oh, that's, that's quite a broad question. I think that um, what I see is that um, I think I think most project managers, and not all, but most project managers will will gravitate to um, what the team does um, uh, rather than um, uh, kind of insisting on their own standards, and that's because they. They may not. They may not know them. They may not have them. They may not have had the experience. They may not want to upset the apple cart. They might be conscious of relationships, whatever that might be. 
um, pressure from uh, a sponsor or a business unit to to just get something done and not faff around with paperwork. There might there might be lots of reasons why um, project management um, professionals um, might not um, might not go about it in that way. Um, one of the things that we've tried to do since I um, launched the project partners business is we um, going back to what I said earlier about the kind of the huge projects and then the small projects. We work with kind of a large range of clients, some of whom have their own project management methodologies and mature standards and ways of working. And some of the clients just, just really don't. Projects are are done um, loosely. Um, and so we've created um, a our, our own uh, project and change management framework uh, called the ABCDE way that really kind of dumbs it down and uses language that, um, that anybody um, whether or not you're a project professional or not can understand because many times there are people who are working um, on projects who don't understand the terminology and the acronyms um, and they just need it to be to be kept simple kept in NAM language so we uh, we developed this this um, this methodology and framework to give that kind of um, just enough guidance so whether you're working on um, a project in a in a very mature organization that right perhaps uh, adhere to a standard like a, a waterfall type standard like a prince two or something like this or a an agile standard a, a scrum or or, or or you know a flavor of uh, a more iterative um, approach to project management um our methodology has those kind of common sense um uh, pillars um to always refer back to um to try and to try and keep things honest so where i see a uh, project managers tripping up is is either not either not having the knowledge or not having the confidence to convey that knowledge um uh, within within the project environment and projects are run by people and people are humans and humans are fallible and that, and that's one of the things that no matter what frameworks and what training and what rigors you put in place sometimes it does come down to the level of comfort you have in having a conversation with the team or with a stakeholder or with a supplier and trying to head off the problem at the pass. And conversations like that aren't always pleasant. Indeed. Um, I think that, you know, communication is, is absolutely key. So, um, and people, people interchange uh, terms like project management and change management. And those two things are, are actually very different disciplines. You know, project management um, is about the, the nuts and bolts um, of the governance and the, um, the the rigor to um, to to get a piece of work delivered. Change management is very much on the on the people side. It's about managing um, the people through that change curve um, of um, you know uh, excitement, despair, you know, and, and all the different emotions that might uh, that might come along. Um, and communication is a key part of that. Um, one of the um, I mentioned the ABCDE way before C in ABCDE stands for communication. We split that into into three uh, disciplines. Um, uh, one one we call uh, criteria, which is about kind of business readiness and communicating very clearly what, how the business needs to be ready to um, to accept the change. But then also um, uh, internal and external marketing. Basically, internal marketing is something which is uh, regularly overlooked in my mind you know um you've got you've got a, a broad range of stakeholders typically when you're um embedding any any project and a, and a change 
um, and kind of um, geeing up um, all of the different parties um, so that they feel excited, they feel like they've been included, they feel like they're part of the change, that it's being done for them, with them, not to them, um, is, is cr kind of critical to the success of, of any change, you know. Um, we've, we've all um, witnessed um, change happen whereby those things haven't happened and therefore, you know, the receiving audience the receiving group um has has not been keen on the idea and, and that can often be where where projects um fail but by putting in that right level of internal kind of communication that internal marketing so to speak as well as the external marketing you know if you're launching a product out in the marketplace you would you know make sure that you have the right marketing to go along with that you you also need to uh, have the right internal marketing to go along with that to uh, to make sure all of the stakeholders are uh, as enthused about the product as um, as you are. Absolutely. And you, you talk there about experience and, and kind of understanding the workings of project and change. So maybe if we go back to the beginnings of your career, because I'd like to step through some of the roles you did from your entry into technology, because you, you covered a lot of ground in a relatively short period of time, and that's created who you are in terms of how you deliver projects. And for any aspiring project professionals that, that would be listening to this, they might want to know, well, how do I extract the very most out of my own experiences so that when it comes to bigger and bigger projects, I've covered enough ground to understand and head off the problems before they occur. So what took you into technology? That's uh, a, a really great question. And one um, I've reflected on um, in, in recent years, you know, as, uh, as I've got, um, you know, a lot, a lot more experience under my belt. Um, at first, um, just as as a kid, um, I was just super interested in in tech. Um, I, I first got you know I got my first computer when I was uh, six years old, and I was uh, used to back in the day. For anyone that can remember, there used to be computer magazines with lines of code that were printed out in them, and I'd be there six years old tapping away, um, copying and uh, copying and pasting wasn't even a thing then. Just uh, typing out the uh, the code and, and creating the little the little programs and the little games um, to play and. Saving, saving the programs on the little tape recorder. Um, and quite often, my mum would be calling me down for uh, for my tea, and uh, and and the, the, I hadn't quite finished saving yet, and I'd lose all my work and all, all that kind of good stuff. All those great experiences. Um, I think you're younger from, than you know, me. The early days of, of of what technology was available, but um, you know, I, I turned that kind of um, you know typing out the code yeah. that was provided to experimenting with different variations and changing the game to my own style and. I had a, a friend uh, who lived around the corner when it was a few years later when it was maybe nine or ten and we used to create the games together and um you know create create little games around the, the TV shows that we'd seen and, and and things like this and you know very very fond memories of those days and what was that then so a Commodore 64 um was that was that a com so, sorry say that again was that a Commodore 64 what kind of computer was that because <laughs> you're a bit younger than me an um, and then I moved into an Atari 800 XL and then uh, an Atari ST five twenty. Wow. Um, the, so it's a um, you know you were either in the Atari ST camp or the Amiga camp when I was a kid. So uh, yeah, ha happy days. Um, so it seemed like an obvious choice then for me, Alistair, to uh, to 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 move into that um, and, and go and do that at university. So I did software engineering at um, at UMIST, uh, University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology, which is now merged with the University of Manchester. It's one single uni in, in Manchester in the UK. And um, yeah, I got my uh, got my degree there. Although um, spent uh, spent a lot more time um, in in the bar than I did in the lecture theatres, and, and didn't cover myself in glory with the grade I got. 
but uh, I, I, I think I had the underlying uh, talent. And, um, and I, I, before I actually um, graduated, um, I had kind of my last exam um, on the kind of the Friday. Um, and I started my uh, my graduate placement with my first employer um, on the Monday. So uh, zero, uh, zero break and, and, and kind of straight into my career. And I, I started a, um, a software um, uh, in, a software company that created laboratory software, a company called Lab Systems. And they, they had quite a nice graduate kind of training program. They always took in a couple of grads every year and kind of embedded them within the kind of the, the more mature team. So that was, you know, really kind of great opportunity to get get my first, um, first proper job on, under my belt. Um, and about 18 months later, um, they were starting to move into web technologies and take the the thick client that we were developing, Sample Manager, um, into uh, into the web as a thin client, um, a product called Nautilus. And I was desperate to get onto that team and, and kind of start to get into web development technologies, but didn't didn't make it on there. And um, kind of that that cemented the idea that I wanted to uh, I wanted to move. And um, uh, why I, I, I don't know, but I um, I was just never never afraid of of moving about or moving geographically to kind of achieve the career goals and the next goal and the next move um i went to a little island off the uk called the isle of man which people may uh, may know um, and i went to work for a fund management company it's a bit of a bit of a tax haven out on the isle of man and um yeah i went to work out there and it was an amazing uh, experience I was there for a year great culture um the uh, the boss was a bit crazy he used to uh we used to go for four pints at lunchtime and then do our best work in the afternoon, that, that sort of culture. And, um, but yeah, we, we were developing some real kind of cutting edge uh, cross browser uh, technologies. This is back in the day when there were competing web browsers like internet Explorer and Netscape, and you had to write code that would work in either browser and fail over correctly and real, real cutting edge stuff and um, contributing to open source libraries and, and things of this nature. Great, great experience. So you're a real tech head at this point in time. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, a real. I'm, I'm, I probably still am. I just don't uh, don't get the uh, my fingers dirty anymore these days. Um, but yeah, the um, the uh, then obviously kind of being away um, from from friends and family, you know, the, the calling to to come back to the mainland was there, and um, I then I then used the experience I then gained from from that to uh, to land myself a job with IBM Global Services and. That was my kind of first introduction to um to kind of consulting in a way um uh being you know came came to ibm and they they would place me at their different clients and i got some great exposure there to some some fabulous kind of um, big names in the uk barclays bank barclay card um, nissan um bradford and bingley which is now now defunct um, you know, I was running bigger and bigger teams, and um, as a kind of lead software engineer, now head of head of software and engineering for a particular project. Um, you know, teams of kind of ten or fifteen developers, and um, kind of stumbled across um, contracting as a concept. Still, kind of wet behind the ears at this point. Twenty five, twenty six years old, didn't didn't haven't even really heard of contracting. And as I was trying to ramp up resources in in my team um, from within IBM. Um, and I had to kind of go to the open market and employ people on or two or three times the day rate that uh, that I was earning as a permanent salary um, kind of opened my eyes to, to to kind of what was possible there and then it wasn't wasn't too long too much longer after that that I kind of made my first move into into freelancing and contracting um, and uh, yeah kind of went from there and I worked at um, names like uh, Dixon's um, Dixon's Carpet and Warehouse which is a great experience 
um, then at, then at MBNA, um, which is uh, a huge, huge site in, in Chester in the UK. Um, and it was there that I actually um, kind of fell into project management. Mm. I think I think most people fall into project management. I don't think anybody really sets out to do it. Um, you just kind of end up there one day. And um, the first couple of years of project management, um, uh, I was kind of winging it really, to be honest with you. And I think I think most people end up in that same place. Um, you know, you, you you don't necessarily do any formal qualifications or understand the formal methodologies before you um, are landed in that position, either voluntarily or um, or or, um, or or by force. So um, so yeah, so kind of winging it, and the projects were kind of um, discreet and small enough that you know you could just kind of live on your wits and your common sense and and still get still get the work done. Um, kind of just using. Um, you know the, the the professional knowledge that you you built up by this stage, um, and I think I think re- things really started to kick on for me when I started to take project management as a career seriously, and start to um, educate myself. So I paid um, to put myself through kind of Prince two um, training, um, which um, you know I'd in, I'd encourage not necessarily Prince two, but I'd encourage uh, anyone who's serious about getting into project management um or, or being a project professional to uh, to consider what um what formal um qualification um to study rather than kind of uh winging it or or using the, the methodology that a given company that you might be working for is using and you really always recommend it's worth it. your scope and your horizons and yeah and, and give you a really great rounded understanding of what um what project management is in in the broader broader world so you always recommend it's worth having some form of formal qualification when when that's your trade as a project manager yeah if 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 that's the direction you'd like to go in um that there are always projects going on in organizations um and kind of volunteering yourself and, and, and sticking your hand up and getting yourself in and amongst it you, you will eventually end up as uh, you know having our role um, on a project formally or informally um, as a project manager or, or running a piece of work or as, a, as something like a business analyst or perhaps um, a, a PMO project management office um, analyst or one of, and you may not even kind of know what some of these kind of disciplines are formally you may do but if you if you kind of um, you know get get yourself volunteered for a project and then then when you get in and amongst it um, and, and you're clear that that's the right discipline for you taking that formal qualification um will really give you that kind of um that's kind of the, the theory to go with the practice of uh, of the day-to-day um you know humdrum of uh, of being involved in a project mm. what's interesting about that story is how quickly you went freelance how quickly you went into contract because quite often a lot of you know people will move from a perm to a contract gig and certainly mm, 30 years ago you know however long it was for me the, the contractors I came across, they were career contractors, so whatever they were, and it was pre-Y2K, so I'm really showing my age, but I worked with a lot of COBOL programmers, and, and they were just career COBOL programmers. They'd been a COBOL programmer. They went to be a contractor, and that's all they were going to do forever. Whereas you moved into freelance and then moved into project management after. So you didn't have a, a big organization behind you going, Mark, you're a talent. We're going to develop you into something because you're going to do bigger and better things for this company. You're, you're on your own delivering value to the client for a day rate. And you're, you know, clearly, if we look back on your history, you're building up a big of a project management knowledge base that you become an expert in that field without having that machine behind you. So 
So there must be a particular thing that you were doing to learn, reflect, build on your skills because no one was doing this for you. So, so we talked about you investing separately in your own professional education, but on the job, you must have been doing something. Yeah, I think um, I think I'd say two things about that. The first thing is that um, I'm very much someone who believes in kind of being being in the driving seat. You know, perhaps perhaps I'm a bit of a of a control freak. Um, you know, that I'll leave that for others to judge. But um, I'm very much about making it happen um, for myself, for my team, um, rather than waiting for for opportunities to uh, to arise and someone who'd very much kind of particularly in that early stage of my career you know volunteer for anything put myself put myself about um always be uh you know saying saying yes first and um and then figuring out how to do it later sort of approach um jumping out the jumping out the airplane and building the parachute on the way down so to speak and because I think I just had faith in my own um my own ability to um to to just get it done I'd you know fortunate in that I had that sort of technical technical background and had been doing it for you know by the time I joined um uh the you know the professional career sort of thing you know I, I did go contracting I think when I was when I was 26 as I mentioned earlier I've been programming since I was six so I even even though it was kind of you know in my in my bedroom while I was getting called down for my tea it was still 20 years of of, of hard yards of 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 learning my craft so um I had I had the faith in myself that I that I could do it. Um, I invested in myself again. If you, if you're serious about kind of progressing um, your career, whatever success looks like to you, be that you know the 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 title, the 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 salary, whatever, whatever success is to you, um, you know you, you've got to invest in yourself. You can't just wait for your uh, your your employer to come along and um, and, and do it for you. Um, so yeah, that that be the um, the first thing um, I would say about that, and I think I think the other thing then is um, because I had built up that uh, that technical track record, and I understood um, programming, architecture, databases, all, all of the fundamental principles of of technology that you need to kind of understand um, and and get on and and, and do a piece of work. Um, that um, I was able to rely on that. Um, and that critical questioning and uh, understanding um, the, the particular projects I first worked on were were, were projects whereby a vendor was delivering um, uh, the capability for the client, and um, so I was able to challenge the vendor, not have the wool pulled over my eyes when they were saying that something was or wasn't possible or would um, you know cost more money. I was able to critically question and use that use that technical background to to kind of for, force my way in that way. Um, but still, at this stage, really, if I'm honest, not applying any good project discipline. Mm-hmm. There was no, there was no plan. There was no, um, there was no risk management. There was, there was a date, and there was a, you know, an, a, an aggressive young man who wanted to get the job done, and, and and that's 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 how it went for the first couple of years until we, uh, until I got the, the kind of the formal qualification and understanding under my belt. And did you have any particular mentors or or figures that? you learn from at any point in your career so I've talked about you know you setting the stand for major projects and you're one of two key mentor figures there's another guy called Russell Waite that I worked with who's a fantastic project and program manager and he's perfect in every way apart from when you're watching the football and he's a Liverpool fan and he goes a bit mental when he's watching the football oh he's supporting the right team then yeah but did you have any characters like that 
Um, I think, uh, I wouldn't say there was one standout mentor. Um, I have subsequently got myself a mentor, which we'll perhaps uh, touch on a little later. Um, and that's more about the business journey mm -hmm. than the kind of the project management journey. But when um, what I've always been fortunate is is, is kind of during um, during those years, those formative years where I was learning my craft, and um, I was always surrounded by um, other people who were on a similar journey and at different stages of the journey. So rather than having kind of one individual standout mentor, um, uh, it was kind of um, a, a, a peer group of mentors, if you like, um, a number of other kind of contractors so people who'd had to you know break through and and and, and go freelancing and, and and had that knowledge um and um for example the, the first organization um that i uh or the, actually the second con uh, organization that i contracted at which was um mbna there was a group of kind of um five or six uh kind of freelance uh project managers business analysts who um kind of were my social group we'd go and have lunch together in the canteen and go for a walk around the, the lovely grounds there and um and, and chat and things like that and and uh, you know a lot of a lot of learning you know if i didn't if i really didn't know um i would turn to those guys um uh to for for, for learning and i think then as as time gone on as i started to run the really big programs there's a, a particular guy who um i really got on with um like a house on fire a guy called uh, uh, Gren uh, Ingleson, who's um, subsequently uh, retired a number of years ago now. Uh, lovely guy from the northeast of England, and he was a real mentor to me. I um, I started running a project. This was a number of years later. I started running a project at Lloyd's Banking Group that was around about a six six million budget piece of work. So you know, medium sized project. Um, I had a few people working um, with me on that project. Um, and um, what became apparent a few months in is that actually this particular piece of work was going to, you know, kind of uh, you know, 10, 10 x into like a fifty million pound piece of work, and um, with with a lot more um, a lot more impacts. And as as the change request to kind of increase the scope of the project to to, to turn it into that size of piece of work was approved, um, I think the organisation or the, the the management there at the time felt that. I didn't have the experience to um, to lead that piece of work on my own, which um, I wasn't very happy about at the time because I, th I thought I did. But um, they they brought in this guy Gren, and Gren Gren was great because he immediately identified that I didn't really need the help, and he would he would he would be the kind of the the face and the, the trusted guy who they'd worked with before, and he'd kind of leave me to sort of get on with it and um, and and kind of guide me. Um, and then I was fortunate enough uh, as I moved um, onto a different organization later that I uh, I offered Gren a role on my team and he, uh, he accepted and, and came to join me. Um, so yeah, Gren was someone who uh, who would really look uh, look to as that kind of the, that project management mentor during my career. Sounds like a, an easy day rate for Gren on that first project. And shout out to Gren because I've met him as well and a fantastic individual. Yeah, lovely guy, lovely guy. So you started talking numbers there, and and that's an interesting thing in a project manager's career, because you you, you look at sizes of projects, and then people start throwing numbers around like six million, twenty million, fifty million, and then we get up to seven hundred and forty million, which is the size of the program that you mobilised. You know, probably the most, the biggest one that you did, which are unbelievable numbers, and as a as a young project manager building your craft you think about figures like that and you think how on earth can i keep control 
of a program of that size with that many moving parts with that many people and 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 at that early stage in your career you don't understand how it can even happen so how do you start to get your head around that as you're picking up bigger and bigger programs and how do you make sure that you do apply the right rigors and disciplines to deliver without getting caught like a rabbit in the headlights frightened of the size of the numbers yeah i think um I think I'd say a few things about that. The first thing is that the size of the numbers don't really phase me. And I don't, I don't think it should phase anyone. It just happens to be the price tag attached to, to creating the piece of work. You know, obviously the stakes are higher if it goes wrong. Um, and, you know, there's, 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 there's more money to be lost and, and potentially more, more jobs to be affected and things of this nature. But, you know, really it's, it is just, um, it is just the, the the value of the piece of work in terms of what what needs to be created and delivered. So, um, yeah, you know, just to, I got to the seven hundred and forty million pound uh, project through a number of other multi million pound projects. So, because it wasn't wasn't um, the first rodeo on a on a on a on a big number, but you know, it was. It was probably again like a, another order of magnitude, ten times bigger than anything I'd done before. And I think the 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 piece of work that I'd run just before that particular project was was probably um, one of the most important uh, projects um, that I ran in my career, which was um, back in twenty thirteen when um, I was working for Lloyd's Banking Group um, and um, we launched um, TSB Bank uh, back on the high street for the first time, and um, I uh, I was originally uh, yeah, looking after the project to uh, to change some legacy um cng cheltenham and gosta branches into into full banking branches and that was a very very interesting project learned a lot on that particularly about implementation management and command and control and things of that nature but then when um when it came time to actually relaunch the bank on the high street the the guy that was looking after that program um unfortunately um became ill and and, and had to had to leave um his role and and so there was a gap, um, and they they kind of asked me to to step into that gap, and the, that role was to prepare for the transition event, the cutover event, to to launch the bank, um, and we had all very formal titles, like you know, kind of military esque command and control titles, like event commander and incident commander and things of this nature, and <clears throat> very 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 finely finely planned piece of work with lots and lots of people working hundreds of people working on it on a on a weekend implementation event with a a minute by minute sequence of event plans to make sure all the right things happened in all the right orders to uh, to launch the bank and i um kind of i was it was my role to run the program to prepare for that event and then we would we were doing kind of 24/7 shifts and i i ran one of the uh, one of the two kind of shifts the uh, the day shift in in order to launch launch the bank um, and that involved kind of sitting, sitting at the top of uh, of, a, of a very large uh, table with uh, flanked by kind of the new COO of the bank and the, uh, one of the other kind of senior leaders of the bank and kind of 20, 20 people either side of the table and huge kind of conference uh, screens with people on remote calls and everything kind of getting ready for kind of that go no go uh, moment um, and the structure uh, and the amount of preparation and dress rehearsing and. Uh, you know that stood me in such great stead it gave me such good discipline it was such you know to have that level of trust put in me as you say when i was still relatively early in my career 
you know, in, in charge of um, that event with that many people kind of working on it. It was a great privilege and I was very fortunate for the, 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 the bank put that level of trust in me to, uh, to run that piece of work. And that really gave me um, the, the foundation and confidence to go on and run the, the bigger and bigger pieces of work. Um, and again, in terms of the financial discipline then, um, really um, understanding your, your kind of your resource costs uh, against your um, delivery plan is kind of one of the foundational pillars. So we talked before about planning and risk management. Well, if you've got a decent plan and you've got decent risk management, um, alongside that, you will know what resources are required to deliver those deliverables against that plan. And then if you've got decent risk management, what you can then do is if you know that a deliverable is going to slip, you'll know exactly how the resources are going to be impacted, what additional cost you will incur, what um, you know, what other deliverables down the line that may need those resources may be then downstream impacted as a result of that thing being delayed or requiring more resource now or whatever it might be. So having that resource plan alongside the delivery plan and keeping those things in sync um, is is really critical to, to kind of managing the finances. And of course, you know, I had an absolutely fantastic team of people um, who um, I was able to assemble from from that you know the the knowledge um, that had built up and the relationships that had built up, and so I kind of cherry picked all the all the people um, that I'd worked with previously on previous projects to come and work on that project. And really, you know, I was very very fortunate. I had great backing from from the the organisation, and I, I, I just assembled the absolute A team of people um, to to come and work on it. And um, yeah, and what one of those people was you, Alistair? It was, it was, although we didn't know each other at that point in time, but it was a, it was a privilege to work on that. And, and you, you know, when you do, when you launch in a bank, you've, you've earned the right to cherry pick who you need and launching a bank is a once in a career opportunity, once in a career project. So there's no playbook for it and you can't put yourself on a course to learn how to do it. So no. how important are the people around you in developing that approach? Because I guess you start with pretty much a blank sheet of paper going, well, what does it look like? How are we going to switch the systems on? When do we open the branches? What about the people? How do you come up with an with an approach like that? Sure. Um, we again, we were slightly fortunate in that some um, some of us, myself included, had had exposure to um, an a banking integration project prior to Verde um, in the UK um, during the financial crisis. Um, Lloyd's Banking Group um, kind of purchased um, the HBOS uh, group and kind of uh, there was an integration project to, to merge those two entities uh, together. And um, when, when you look at an integration project and a separation project, they're very, very similar, um, two sides of the same coin. And so we did have some um, uh, previous experience of what what good looked like in terms of um, finally planned implementation events and, and things of that nature. So there was some... Um, we weren't starting from a total blank sheet of paper, but um, what um, one of the great techniques that we used when when there was no playbook for for launching a bank was was to dress rehearse, um, and we um, I think we had about six um, full weekend, um, you know, up to the point where we're about to press the button uh, moment, and where we we went through the different stages of um, of uh, trying to you know quote unquote launch launch the bank in a kind of a, a safe environment um and seeing what happened what went wrong what what incidents came out what where we went off plan capturing those incidents 
making sure that we um, we then went away and worked on those to make sure that next time we did the next dress rehearsal, those incidents weren't present. Um, putting in extremely strong and detailed governance around things like um, reconciliation. So, you know, we started with 5 million accounts. We need to end up with 5 million accounts. We can't lose anyone along, along the way. And having in place the right... Um, the right reporting and reconciliation so that rather than kind of um, understanding what you would do if there's a delta um, on the flying in the moment, predetermining if we do lose 100 accounts along the way out of 5 million, is that okay? Is that tolerable? Can we can we fix that later? And, you know, basically asking yourself the questions before it goes wrong, what would you do? Again, it's it's risk management, um, it, it, uh, again, uh, coming, to, coming to the fore there. So, so that when when it does come to the event and people are tired and under pressure and um, you, you you literally you've got an answer to every question, so going through that kind of dress rehearsal, um, risk you know pre risk management, thinking through the what might go wrongs um, before going into it when when there is no playbook is um, is is what stood us in good stead. That sounds like something that could be replicated for a number of complex deliveries and and you know perhaps. And it, it might make a few eyebrows rise around the executive table, but building in the budget for those dress rehearsals seems like it could be a real good way of managing the risk of those major deliveries. Yeah. I mean, you're spending the money anyway, as some other major projects have found out. So you either you either spend it up front and you have a calm um, implementation that um, that doesn't impact your your customers, your internal stakeholders, your staff, you know, morale and things like this. Um, and it probably cost you a lot, lot more if you um, if if you fail in that way, you know, reputation and so on, or, or you can spend you know a small portion of the budget and do a, do a few dress rehearsals and make sure you get it right, um, you know, when when it, when it's when it's the right moment. So you've done some major deliveries, and, and that that one real feather in your cap, uh, you know, huge budgets. You obviously get to a point where you decide to jump out of internal big organizational project delivery and you move into a more software services, uh, people services, recruitment type business. What was the catalyst to, to shift your career in that way? So I'd always harbored an ambition to uh, to have my own business. Um, and the first first business I started post my contracting career was uh, was um, was a failure um, and um, but it was uh, it was a really great learning experience. So um, when I, I, after the banking separation project we just spoke about, I moved on to another organisation to run another banking separation, um, and then um, then I kind of finally uh, hung up the uh, the project management spurs for the time being to to launch my e commerce business. So came up with a concept to uh, to have a, a a repeat pet food delivery uh, service with a quite an intelligent um, uh, kind of algorithm that kind of calculated the exact amount of uh, food that your pet your dog or your cat would uh, would need to eat and then set up a subscription for the exact right amount to land on your doorstep on a frequent basis so great concept pretty um you know this is 10 10 ish years ago now so uh, you know people are only just uh, starting to stream netflix instead mm-hmm. of getting dvds to the post at this point so subscription was um you know very very innovative at the time and um we um we we built this uh, this great uh, platform and, and website to sit on top of it and launch the business sourced sourced the products went went for a, a white label um, solution sourcing somebody else's products and putting our kind of algorithm and branding for it launched it and um, launched it and did um, did a few kind of 
shows and we, we were very clear on our target market kind of affluent um kind of middle class type families you know cash rich time poor that that sort of audience started off really really well started to build up a team built up a team of marketeers and in-house developers and um we raised some funds and obviously uh, through the contracting experience we'd been able to build up um a lot of a lot of funds personal funds as well that we'd we'd, we'd put into the business and um we we you know kind of you know the growth was happening but it was it was too slow really and the the real kind of nail in the coffin for that business is we weren't able to get the the cost of acquisition down to a, a suitable value that would mean that was sustainable so um you know in, in round numbers um we would kind of a profit approximately 10 pounds per per customer per month per subscribing customer and it was costing us about 100 pounds um to to acquire a customer and so you know you don't need to get your calculator out to work out that you're going to burn through your cash pretty quickly in that environment and uh yeah we we just ran out of road and that was a very uh sad day when we had to kind of disband the team um and uh and and and, and lick our wounds from that lesson but do you think probably you were a bit early on that, that was a very expensive um kind of education yeah. absolutely fantastic in terms of uh learning what it takes to uh to, to launch and run a business and so then um we had we had another go um i kind of remained friends in contact with a few people um in the industry and um you know one of one of those businesses was was looking for some help to uh, to launch a consulting business and so um kind of started started helping them and consulting them on a, with them on a part-time basis to to help them launch their consulting business and wasn't really going anywhere when going about it in the way that, that i would have personally gone about it and Bit of a bit of a heart to heart later with their CEO and um, yeah launched um, launched Project Partners um, and uh, so obviously now this is the combination of many years of kind of the, the project management side experience coupled with the experience now of the the e commerce business failure under my belt and, and how to launch a business so those those two things have been a bit of a bit of a match made in heaven really in terms of kind of letting us letting us accelerate quickly so. We're, um, I founded that business in October 2019, um, so kind of less than four years ago as we speak. And uh, in our third full year of trading, we we turned over 6.1 million. So we grew very, very quickly from a standing start. Um, got some great kind of big name clients under our belt and um, yeah, continuing to, uh, to grow to this day. So just before we get into project partners, I just want to go back to the pet one. I don't, I don't think you can hear me that well at your end. Um, it almost feels like you were a little bit early because, and you talked about people were only just starting to stream Netflix at the time, because as a service now is commonplace. You know, e even even BMW, I've tried to get people to pay as a service for a for their heated seats. I don't know if they've gone ahead with that. It seemed like an awful idea, but as a ser service as a concept, people do, and and I think mail order regular subscription pet food would happen now if it's not already i don't know if there's competitors that have kind of taken that model and making it work because my daughter gets her duck food through the mail and there's a whole story about why we've got ducks and they're a pain and we found them and we look after them and they eat the eaters out of house and home but that comes mail order on a repeat order i think i think you're right i think we were probably probably 18 months two years early and uh, a few were uh, a few quid short, I think, of success. Um, and as much as I, um, you know, I said earlier on in the conversation, I'm very much about taking taking the you know the steering wheel, taking being in the driving seat. You know, th there are luck moments along the journey as well. 
and um, the uh, you know a diff on a, on a different day, you know, we might still be running that business. And and there, there was a another company who founded a similarish time um, with uh, with a lot deeper pockets and a lot bigger backing than us, called Tails.com, who've really um, you know risen quite fast in the UK and become one of the big subscription providers. And you know, people like obviously your Amazons with their subscribe and save concept have kind of come in and things like that. And so. Um, yeah, I think I think the boat sailed for us on, on on that one, um, which is a shame. But yeah, you you, uh, you learn these things along the way. So even even with a great idea and great implementation, you know, we I think we just missed that that little bit of luck. And you know, we were learning along the way as well, and probably made a few wrong turns in terms of you know, some hires and some you know some marketing that we invested in, um, probably you know the wrong wrong channels for too long and things like that. And um, but you know, with, with without that experience, um, you know, there's no growth. So now you've got project partners. Um, what what's the business model there? Are, are all your professionals uh, are they on on salary, or do you do you have a mix of contractors and salaried? Yeah, we have a mix, and the uh, the mix has kind of ebbed and flowed um, through the journey so far. So um, we um, we have a mix of kind of freelance professionals and um, and permanently employed uh, staff. Um, and really we've, we've not quite perfected that model yet um our kind of our demand we're still you know we're only really four years in and our demand is still kind of pretty lumpy um we'll you know we'll we'll, we'll have a client who needs a you know a major project that will require 10 people you know yesterday and um and we need to go to the, the kind of the freelance market to resource up to that quickly um and then you know we've, we've got certain disciplines where we know we're strong and we'll get repeat demand and we we bring in um kind of permanent salary um people to uh, to do that but yeah we, we we've still not quite perfected that model yet that's uh, that's a work in progress and is it is it since you formed project partners that you've started to hone out your own methodology that you can replicate and and implement it with different clients that was the abcd that's right yeah, yeah. so one of the um one of the usps for the launch of project partners was the abcde way um I felt that um, as a new entrant to a very competitive market, um, we needed to get some strong uh, USPs. Um, and we had, you know, obviously, you know, I, I have my experience and the sorts of projects that I've run and that um, always sort of stands us in good stead um, with with the clients that we talk to. But that will only take us so far because if we want to scale, it can't always be me, um, you know, liaising with the clients. Um, and so we built, you know, we built the asset, we captured you know, the accrued knowledge over a number of years. Um, so some of the people at Project Partners are people who've had with me on the journey through, you know, the different clients that I've worked at. Um, I've kind of brought those people together and we've captured um, our best uh, our best knowledge down into the ABCDE way. And we also created a great um, uh, educational course for uh, people who um, are aspiring to go kind of freelancing that we've called uh, Perm to Contract. And we made that freely available as a video series on our website. So, anyone who's aspiring to sort of um, make that leap from being permanently employed into into freelance um particularly focused on the project management um and project professional space but would equally apply to any freelance career really um it's around three pillars um mindset money and marketing so um i think you need a, a particular mindset and a particular uh, robustness of thinking to uh, succeed in the freelance world very I mean, a bit like you referenced earlier with the cultural differences between Australia and the UK, you know, on the face of it, you know, modern Western English speaking society, how, how different can it be? 
but you know very very culturally different lots of different um, nuances and the same is true between permanent and, and and contract you know you need to have a certain um way of approaching things um in order to uh, to succeed and, and and continually get good billable work and continue your career um marketing so you might be a great project manager pro, pro, excuse me project manager software developer database administrator whatever your your technical skill um is but it doesn't necessarily mean you're any good at selling yourself and that is par for the course when you are a contractor you've got to uh you've got to go and find your next uh your next gig get lined up to uh, to do your next piece of work and also the money side of things so uh, one of the things i learned early on um in a bit of a bit of a george best moment is that uh you know i spent all my contracting money on uh, fast cars and, uh, and and booze and women and the rest are just wasted and uh so having that strong financial management um and, and mindset around um you know simple things like making sure you're setting aside setting up aside to pay your tax bills and um, but then you know more forward thinking around you know how to invest um kind of the money that you've got for a rainy day so you can always um you know uh, derive a decent uh consistent income um from it is uh, is also important so yeah i think um it'll be a useful resource for anyone who's an aspiring contractor definitely sounds it what what does the commercial proposition for a, a contractor look like in the uk now because when i left the bulk of contractors would set up their own limited company so so they'd command a higher day rate because there's a lack of job security but then there'd be tax advantages for having a limited company and but since I've left, IR thirty five's really got a foothold in certain parts of the industry. So what does it look like for the different flavors of contractor now? Yeah, that's right. So um IR thirty five has really turned uh, the industry upside down. One of the um again, one of the USPs that we launched with was um IR thirty five impact mitigation strategies for our clients. Um what we spent a lot of time doing is uh, educating ourselves on uh, IR35 and kind of I spoke at a number of events kind of educating um, people with my IR35 knowledge and bringing contractors up to speed and the way we've set ourselves up at Project Partners is we have um, we <laughs> we have statement of work so we have clearly defined um, deliverables um, clearly defined outcomes um, and we um, we contract with our contractors in such a way that they are uh, IR35 compliant and we can evidence they're genuinely uh, outside uh, IR35. And we back that up with um, status determination uh, tools. So we work with a third party who uh, um, who provides us with a tool where we can ask all of the right questions for a particular contract and a particular contractor to make sure that uh, we are genuinely able to offer an outside IR35 uh, engagement. And then we back that up further with uh, an insurance product. So in the unlikely event that we've we've got it wrong and we've you know, try to try to play by the rules and, and do our best. Um, if it, if if we have uh, gone wrong, then we've got uh, some insurance protection against that as well. And so we um, we engage with uh, the vast majority of our uh, contract population um, on an outside IR thirty five basis. That um, there's lots of different uh, solutions. The market hasn't really settled just yet in the UK um, on that basis. I think the other point you referenced around the tax advantages they've they've also eroded a little mm. and there's been some changes around corporation tax dividend tax and, and things like this that have happened over the last few years that have made it less and less um 
of a differential between working as a as a as a PAYE um kind of salaried um individual versus having your own limited company, it is still slightly more advantageous and it also depends upon what other work you do and and so on um to be to be a limited company, but um it's getting closer and closer so um it's becoming you know near as makes no difference in some instances which which is very much the way it is in australia so the biggest shock i had so i i've been in perm roles uh since i've been here but i bring a lot of contractors into the business and it was a shock to me to find out that essentially they're, they're just paid exactly the same as salaried people there's compulsory superannuation in in australia so the only advantage is you command a higher day rate uh, for the for the lack of job security so it's it's a good thing to do it's a good career yeah but um none of the limited company type uh tax advantages were, are, are associated with the vast majority of contractors that work in australia yeah okay well, yeah, we'll see how it uh, how it plays out. There's still a movement in the UK, and there has been a bit of uh, hokey cokey around um, a, a, a two or three chancellors ago. I forget how many now. There's been quite a few in the UK. There was the IR35 legislation was going to be rescinded um, to great um, pomp and celebration on uh, on LinkedIn and other social media, and then um, and then there was another U-turn a few days later that was. Uh, so yeah, I think there's still the dust has still got to settle on that and where it will go longer term on that kind of uh, that tax position. I think um, aside from that though, um, what you mentioned there about about the job security, for me, if you're able to demonstrate repeated success across a number of different clients, across a number of different industries, that you are a, a person who can land in an organization quickly, um, kind of get up to speed and learn about that organization, bring your learnings from different industries, different specialisms to that organization. That is the the job security that I would want um, and, and I would advocate. So uh, as well as being able to command a higher day rate um, for that lack of job security, I would actually inversely say that um, having that kind of cross-industry, cross-specialism experience makes you a highly, highly um, employable commodity, whether or not it is on a freelance or a permanent basis. And that in itself is what brings the job security um, as far as I'm concerned. I agree. It's within your own gift to have as, uh, as prosperous a career as you possibly can. You know, it, it, it's on you. You can invest in yourself. You can deliver well. You can work hard and you'll you'll do well. So you, you've spent, you know, an, an age in projects, programs and change. Looking back over the years, what's some of the significant changes that are, that are working for the better since you started your projects career? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think that um, one of the biggest shifts I've seen um, over the past five or ten years has been the uh, the shift um, of organisations to want to um, to want to kind of move from what is kind of perhaps perceived as a more traditional uh, project management methodology and like a waterfall based approach, like a Prince two based approach to more of an agile uh, based methodology. And there's a few different flavors of agile, but the majority uh, of organizations uh, implement something akin to, uh, to scrum. Um, and um, I think that shift has had um, mixed results. I think that um, some uh, executives kind of mix up agile with a big A and agile with a little A and think that agile means faster, better, quicker, cheaper. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, it means um, it means that we're able to kind of 
feel our way into a project means about iterate our way into a project, deliver value early and then continue delivering uh, value in, in theory versus a big bang moment at the end of a, a well kind of um, structured and methodical uh, project like a, like a waterfall style project. Um, and different organizations I've seen have different levels of success with that. Um, I think where people uh, kind of go wrong um, is where they try and shoehorn um, a project um, that is clearly not suitable for the methodology. Um, for example, like a regulatory project, a regulatory project has a hard end date and fixed requirements. That is not suitable for an agile project. You can't deliver half the regulation, you'll get fined. <laughs> it needs to be a more waterfall approach in my in my personal view. Similarly, if you're you know building a building, you can't build half a building it, it, it doesn't work so yeah you can't you you know you've got to pick the right methodology for the right project um and understand um, the differences between the two rather than try and force people you know a, a you know a web a web development project for a new product perhaps you know a waterfall project a waterfall methodology is not suitable for that and equally you know an agile um, methodology is not really suitable for a you know a, a fixed fixed time or a fixed uh a fixed scope project or one where one where both of those things are fixed it doesn't it doesn't work so i think that um i think that that shift and that ability to to run in a more agile way has been obviously a positive uh change but only in the right environments um would be kind of the, one of the biggest changes i've seen i think also the kind of the move towards um the more as a service sort of model uh has also uh given a lot of great kind of mobility uh, uh to people you know um uh, and i think accelerated as well by obviously what's happened with with covid and remote working and, and kind of more acceptance around that ability you're now able to access perhaps um specialist resources working remotely that you wouldn't perhaps have previously considered um if you were kind of mandating that um people needed to be uh in the office and also kind of the collaboration tools as well um have kind of facilitated that but i, I also think actually um project management is perhaps one of the least um kind of mature uh, industries in terms of the adoption of of technology and tools some you know, you know more advanced organizations do implement things like ppm tools project and portfolio management tools and understand the data but for me they're, they're kind of few and far between and the uh, the opportunity for um for advancement there is still um is still open i think so i'll come back to that bit in a minute because i'm interested in your views on on perhaps where ai is going and how it might help or hinder project managers but just back to the agile one so so there's clearly there's clearly projects where you, you want to use agile because you want to bring that functionality to market quickly you and and it's it's quite all right to build on it and enhance it and make it better as you go but at the same time within the same organization there's going to be some big regulatory change and it's not appropriate to do so so we have an organization a good one that's doing both and how where have you seen it done really well where an organization is can can work in in both modes and particularly around the giving out of money and the governance around the giving out of money so you're having an executive mind shift where you might say well i need two million for this uh, regulatory piece and, and that's what I want. And then you've got the other bit saying, well, I need two million for this, but it's a little bit more vague how I'm going to get there. Where, where does that work well? Yeah, yeah honestly, I, I've not seen that work well anywhere. Um, I think that um, I think that one of the big challenges um, that 
the kind of the in a large organization um the leadership teams the executive teams have with um with agile is that they are used to um receiving reporting information and project information in a certain format and they are used to releasing funds in a certain way um and um, and that doesn't necessarily tie in with how organizations have implemented agile perhaps implemented agile in their in their development teams perhaps in their project teams but they've not that i've seen yet anyway um and i'd love to see a great example of it implemented it well in the exec teams and in the governance forums so i've not seen an example of where that has been well understood and implemented actually um yeah i uh very much hope to uh if uh, anybody uh, feeds back and, and, and points us in the right direction, I'd love to see it. And I believe it can be done. And I think there's, there's there's one or two cases out there, but I'd love to get into the detail of knowing how how that you know how people have done that and how they've got the execs on board and how they've got the the governance around it. So we talked about tech, and it would be remiss of us not to talk about AI and how that might impact project delivery. Have you seen anything so far that uh, piqued your interest? Definitely, yeah. Um, we are uh, we're going kind of all in on uh, on AI and automation. Most of the um, but what we've recently done is um, is release um, a new version of our um, our website, our platform, which we call PPV two uh, Project Partners Version Two. We couldn't think of a better name. Um, and what that does is that so we're trying to um, we're trying to provide um, both our partners, which is kind of all of the consultants that. Um, either work with us on a permanent or a contract basis and all of our clients with a fantastic frictionless digitally transformed end-to-end experience Mm -hmm. so whatever interaction that you need to have with us whether or not we are we're looking for a hire and and bringing somebody on board or you're a client looking for a a solution for a project or an individual um that the the kind of that whole end-to-end experience is just kind of simple as shopping on amazon so We've embedded uh, AI in there. So we've got this absolutely fantastic um, implementation of AI that we've used, whereby we um, we ingest um, a partner's um, CV, um, and then we use um, some off-the-shelf uh, parsing uh, software API to, uh, to kind of rip that CV down into its constituent um, components. Um, and then we've written a load of uh, bespoke prompts. So we kind of API into... Um, OpenAI, which is the kind of platform behind ChatGPT, and we um, we ask um, the those prompts a series of questions about the different data elements that could encapsulated within somebody's CV, and then we basically store that back to our database. And so what we've got is we've got a situation for the first time where you can compare the um, the profiles of two individuals in a very much apples for apples way rather than trying to consume the CV of one professional versus the CV of another professional and trying to assimilate manually whether or not, you know, person A has got certain skill uh, A or person B has got certain skill A or whatever it might be. You can now browse and filter um, our profiles based upon um, how the AI has assimilated that. And we've also used the opportunity to then lay out people's profiles in a very, very consistent manner. So, you know, a, a summary of the individual and their their experience listed out in a very kind of um, a project partners esque 
layout with a summary of each role and a, a summary of the um, the achievements and the responsibilities of each role and um, and then again role matching so um, so a senior project manager is always a senior project manager because they they meet our definition of what a senior project manager is versus a junior project manager say so we've brought kind of a consistency um, and a uh, you know a solid format to um, to the word world of consultancy and we've got you know you're going to pay an, an amount per day for a senior project manager and here are all the people who meet that criteria so that has been one um, instance where we've implemented um, AI uh, very successfully um, and we've got a couple of other great examples. Yeah that's a really interesting one because everyone's resume CV is different they all write it in different way different fonts etc etc different ways of, of demonstrating their achievements so if I understand that correctly, it's taking that data and, and representing it in a consistent way so we can go, well, well, we can now we can now effectively analyze whether they've got experience in X, Y, Z. Correct. Exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. Um, and there's other there's other really exciting features that we've uh, we built into it as well. One of the one of the things that we're passionate about is kind of um, equality and, and diversity and inclusion. So. We've um, we've we've put a, an optional filter just now on it, so that and it's on by default. So the diversity and inclusion filter removes all kind of personal characteristics from the the profile that you're presented with. So the profile picture, the name, um, the age, and so on is or the date of birth, whatever. This is none of that is on there. None of that personally identifiable information. So you can browse through by just pure skill alone, or you can you know turn the diversity and inclusion filter off, and you can see. Um, a little bit more about about the person we've made that optional just now and we're kind of experimenting our way into what um what the the needs of our clients are with that i imagine that is quite attractive to the clients you're working with definitely definitely it's certainly um something that's important to some of the bigger clients that we've we've got on the roster just now um yeah so that's um that's that's a really strong piece of functionality as well uh, the other thing that we've um <clears throat> we've done and we've actually launched um another business uh, as well off the back of this um we've had incredible success with um in terms of marketing uh, the project partners business with um cold outreach campaigns so um these are the emails that um i'm sure you receive um trying to trying to sell you something shudder which made me shudder as well when i first uh, first came across them but um what we've done is we've done something pretty um pretty kind of detailed and involved and become real kind of um i guess experts in the cold outreach space and we've um, developed some technology which um allows us to um again kind of um scan different pieces of information from a potential target prospects website and their linkedin profile and so then when we when we reach out to them via either email or linkedin we're able to reach out in a much more um personalized at scale way um, so we have an understanding of what problems and pain points that you may be experiencing in your role in your organization and so when we reach out to you to um to find out if um if any of these pain points are relevant uh, because we've had the ai involved in 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 personalizing that scale um you know that 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 email is far more likely to resonate uh, or that linkedin message far more likely to resonate with you um, and then we can start a conversation with the with the prospect to see if we can we can help them um and the, yeah that was very very successful for for project partners and so we've started to offer that as a service to other clients now um and the uh, yeah the, the the book for those clients is kind of ramping up um pretty quickly because it's a st extremely attractive 
proposition um, uh, to people to kind of drive those, drive those, uh, you know, qualified um, prospects, uh, meetings with those qualified prospects. So yeah, that's uh, another uh, area where we've exploited AI pretty quickly. And you've got demonstrable uh, conversion increase as a result of doing that because nobody likes a, a, a cold email. However, everyone's got pain points and if it manages to match one with the other, Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, some of the uh, some of the stats that we've been achieving in terms of our open rates and reply rates and, and kind of conversion rates through to meetings are, are pretty kind of you know there are a, a few a few times uh, what what the industry says you should be getting. So we're, we're we're pretty happy with the results so far, but we're only really scratching the surface just now. We've got something great, but um, you know it's still you know we're still in the black and white Nokia days, and we uh, we're heading towards the iPhone sort of thing. So four years in, AI is now in the business. We're seeing a, a big ramp up. What comes next? Well, we've got big ambitions. Um, we really do think that we've got kind of um, something special in the way that we um, kind of treat uh, our partners and aspire to treat our partners. We're certainly not the the finished article yet. It's my ambition that, um, you know, I, I want to create the organisation that I would have loved to have um, freelanced, contracted for, you know, an organization that, that cares about me, shares content that I'm interested in, um, pays me well, uh, looks after me when there's a problem, um, you know, provides me with um, invitations to relevant events with my peers, um, you know, provides me with great products that I know uh, I will need, such as kind of um, accountancy services or insurance services or those other associated services that you will you will require as a, as a freelancer. Um, and then for our clients, provide them with an experience whereby whether or not they are very clear what resource solutions they require for a particular project, or they're just totally unclear and they need help with mobilizing a project and understanding why and the business case behind a project, that we've got a range of, of solutions um, for, for those clients as well. Um, we've got you know big ambitions to to ramp up to. We've got the magic number in my head is uh, is is a thousand, so a thousand um partners uh, deployed at our clients um across the uk and internationally as well um we think that's a probably a, a a seven to ten year journey um from here and um you know but we've we've started to give ourselves the the tools um to start to dream about achieving those goals so um yeah i'm very very excited about the future and and then equally with the um you know with the outreach business again continuing to enhance that and where we find success um you know offering that out to you know particularly small and medium enterprises um you know i um absolutely i'm very very passionate about um entrepreneurs and small and medium uh, enterprises and um you know providing them with with tools um you know democ in a democratized way where you know for a, for a modest um monthly fee um, they're able to leverage you know the you know the many many pounds that we've spent on developing these tools um is um you know uh makes me feel good so yeah uh, that uh, that's what's next i've no doubt you'll get there so um if someone's got a problem and no one else can solve it and if they can find you how can they connect with the a team it's very funny that you say that because one of our marketing campaigns last year was a a, vis a physical video card that we sent through the poster people, like like those greeting cards that you get at Christmas that open up and sing jingle bells to you. We sent out about fifty 
um, TFT screens in a video card, and they were 18 branded. I had no so idea. Very, uh, I had no idea. <laughs> very, um, very apt. Yeah, so you can find us um, on the web, uh, project.partners, um, no.com, no.uk, just project.partners. Um, and then you can, you know, you can see um, live there the uh, the portfolio of partners um, that have all been through our kind of AI transformation and how we're presenting that to uh, to the world. And um, you can also um, uh, contact me uh, through the site and book uh, book time with me through uh, through that site. Brilliant, Mark. I really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. Thank you very much. I've loved it. Thanks for your time. Great to uh, great to see you again. Um, great to see your. Uh, you know, your journey um, in Australia and uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, look forward to uh, seeing the podcast come out. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks very much.